Jacob. Joey. <laughs> Welcome back again to the hey, podcast. Hey, hey, how you going? How's it going? Did we? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, how's that? How's provoking rollerbladers into uh, angry defenses of their sport going for you? That was so weird. I didn't even expect that. I thought that <laughs> I thought that it was just like a straight up like, oh, these are two things that were really interesting that happened recently. Um, and then, and then you're, you're out of the cult now, man. So everything that goes wrong, it's your fault. So weird. And the one thing, like. It was rollerbladers saying this is an aggressive rollerblading, and then I'm like, I kind of think to myself sometimes, I'm like, that's that's good, that's a good thing. And then if people see us at the park, going really smooth and controlled and fast, uh, maneuvering around, and they're like, are you guys that ski? The, the, the kid was like, are you guys that ski crew from Sun Peaks? And then he named some ski crew, and I was like, no. And then, but in my head, I was like, huh, that's a uh, that's a big compliment, and then it, and then I wanted to share it, and then it just backfired. Just, <laughs> just anger, lots of text, people furiously banging the keyboard. It's still going. The part that really surprises me is, like, if you had done a radical 180 recently, you know, like super baggy sweatpants into tight pants or something like that, I can understand followers being upset. You know, like you had. Uh, betrayed them or something but how are these people following you and paying attention to you and this is a surprise yeah i don't know know i I mean um it weirded me out um i guess there's a certain amount of like old school knowledge and and stuff that i post that is related to what we know as aggressive skating and maybe that's why people can follow the page or or whatever but um you trick them into thinking that you're still in the cult, that you're still, you know. <laughs> I have a, I have an appreciation of the history, and I can't just drop that. Like I can't cut that relationship at all. So <laughs> I'll still share things once in a while, but um, yeah. But that- long story short, I would take it as a compliment too, because you know, if I was out skating and someone saw me and what I do on skates and said that it was quote unquote not aggressive skating, I would take that as a compliment because it meant they didn't associate me with people and with attitudes like uh, went postal on you this afternoon. <laughs> Excellent. This is a good thing. No, it's not. It's not to a, to a lot of people. When you get criticized by someone you have no respect for, it's a compliment. It's a good thing. <laughs> I've been thinking about also um, how you could you could make a really good edit or have a really good section, and if eighty-five to ninety percent of the tricks are acceptable, you could throw in like three tricks that are unacceptable or be wearing something that's distracting, and all of that work goes out the window in rollerblading. If you like, if you do like a <laughs> kick or something that's not roll as too rollerblading looking or you know like it's very yeah. it's very unacceptable uh it's for, weird for for unwritten rules they are very very detailed and uh, someone who's you know willing to speak with you at length about these things like you and i or 
Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with Frank Stoner along the same lines. You can, the depth that you can take the unwritten rules to is amazing. And you can point to specific examples where those rules have been broken. And that person has just taken one big step back, you know, out of the cult, out of the cool kids group. And then there's nowhere else to go really for them because you're going to be you're going to be ousted if that's the right world word anyway. So there's no like support system. So you kind of just have to go on your own journey. Um, I find that skiing seems to be accepting of people straying super far, but there's, it's weird. They're still really open-minded. I was trying to explain to Todd about the like Phil Casabon. He, he didn't really know what I was talking about until he watched the skiing um, um. about how he, he bends the rules so hard, but performs the new tricks perfectly with like perfect style um, and kind of like sets the precedent. But at the same time, he's breaking like so many rules on how you're supposed to use skis. Yeah. One, one thing that's really occurred to me about skiing lately, and uh, I think you and I have mentioned this before in a podcast or something to that effect, is the fact that you had the teen subculture of skiing but that it was moderated by the fact that skiing was this huge worldwide community that had been around forever. So when you look at a lot of the teen subcultures, you know, skateboarding and uh, freestyle bike riding and rollerblading, in the beginning, it's the people that are radical and it's the people that just break all norms and break all conventions that are respected. But then as the sport becomes popular and you actually have a, a community, you have a, a subculture of people doing it, it's like everything has to get approved by the mob, you know, by the, by the democratic majority or something. And suddenly being radical is frowned upon and being cool and being moderate and being middle of the road is the way to go. You know, that's what stylish is. Once, the, once the, the teen community is developed, it's someone who doesn't stray too far from the norm in any direction. But you look back to the beginning of some of these uh, sports, some of these um, communities, and it was the people that were willing to go way out in left field who were the ones that were respected and the ones that were admired, you know? It, it doesn't seem like we really have that in skating anymore. It's kind of been the same group for what feels like a decade and i don't know if any torches are being passed or if there's any anything um rising up out of skating it just seems like no one's gonna do the second latimer word section you know yeah and i mean we've had some contenders i know i know there's talk about there not being much change in the guard regarding, you know, people like Hathi and people like Broskow still having uh, positions, you know, on the top of the ladder uh, in, the, in the pro ranks. But, I mean, you look at people like Montre, you look at people like John Bellino, there have been skaters that, that can challenge what they've done and maybe not one-up them, but take it in a different direction and take it a little further. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're really given the opportunity or it doesn't seem like there's the support for them to go anywhere with it. And I guess that was part of the reason for John Bellino doing what he did is saying like, look, you know, I'd love to be the, the next big pro, the person that takes skating to the next level, but there just aren't enough 
people and enough money behind me to make that happen, there's, you know, there's no future there. There really isn't. And, uh, and it, it, it's sad, but it does need to be said because I, I still see a lot of edits and I still hear a lot of talk about, oh, look at this, you know, uh, teenage prodigy. He's coming up. And I'm like, coming up to where? Like, there, there's nothing there. <laughs> uh, we were joking about that on a Kevin Dowling podcast when there was like some pros that they maybe they hadn't been old, old pros that maybe hadn't been following uh, rollerblading and they they expected their comeback to be this amazing big grand return and then and then they I guess they started to get the feel that there's really nothing there's no gift or, or present or reward for and coming it's back. It's not even so much gift or present or reward it's who's who's getting paid enough even if it's in things like uh, plane flights and hotel rooms and stuff who's getting paid enough that they don't need to be making money or getting money from somewhere else to be able to do nothing but rollerblading I mean that was always the point of being a professional and that was always the point of dividing professionals and amateurs was that a professional didn't have to worry about paying bills a professional didn't have to worry about working a real job they just got to skate all day and that's why they were so much better than the amateurs that hasn't existed in rollerblading in a long time i think that's a good thing i mean people would say otherwise but i i think some interesting skating would happen if there were some of those big names were forced not forced to work but if if they had no other choice but to get a job to make money and skated in their spare time um, Colin Kelso talked about his appreciation for skating and how much more he skated when he had kind of a nine to five structured life. He said he was more productive than when yeah. he was a pro skater. I don't know. I think there's some no, value in going I through. I agree. It, it's a paradox. You value the time more so you can fit more in, you know, per hour or per day. I, I agree. It helps if you have a schedule that's conducive for it. You know, working evenings or working nights or something. But um, I don't know. Maybe he wants to go skip night instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't. I didn't grab the topic list because I'll just say that we recorded. How long was our our last podcast? The unreleased. Like like nine thousand hours. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing the sh shorter, peppier version of it right now but i don't i forgot to grab the list of topics so no worries um I'll, I'll just i'll just start talking let's do um, it so since last podcast moved to breckenridge in colorado um i i loved it in tahoe but just wasn't getting enough work to to pay the bills and to be able to make anything of the opportunities that were there for me so uh took a job in breckenridge absolutely loving it um it's in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, so it's about an hour west of Denver, uh, very high altitude, um, apparently gets a lot of snow in the winter. That's been coming in over the last few days. And um, outside of it raining six days a week for the first two months that I got here, uh, yeah, couldn't be happier. Have you they, gone skiing uh, They yet? just rebuilt the skate park in town. Um, uh, Tim Payne's crew built a park here, I guess, in the 70s or the 80s or something. And uh, it was looking pretty pretty old and pretty worn. So 
they took up a little bit more space. They rebuilt the park with everything that they've learned since about, you know, how to make it uh, contemporary and how to make it what skaters today want it to be. And it's been open for about a month. And, yeah, it's really good. Small town, small park, but for the money, it's really good. And have you skied yet? I have. Um, went skiing today. So it's today was day five. So I've been out five times. And, you know, it's just like maybe three hours each time. Nothing too, nothing too crazy, nothing too epic. But I remember how to do it. And, um, yeah, looking really good. And your perspective um, of, of skating has changed because you're skiing and one's feeding into the other? Um, I don't know. The, the environment and the, uh, the community and the influences is changing my perspective of skiing. Um, it's hard to explain Breckenridge without having actually visited, without someone listening actually having visited here. But um, it's uh, a town that has a fairly diverse group of people living in it now who have been, you know, working their way in over, let's say, 20, 30 years. And most of them probably worked their way in before uh, Vale Resorts owned the, uh, the mountain, owned the ski resort. So although it has that history of being like a mining town and being like a, like a high country, you know, mountain town, um, very diverse group of people, very interesting group of people here right now. And you get a sense of that when you start moving through the community and you start picking out the visitors from the locals. And it took me a little while to do that. Uh, it took me probably a month or two of living here to actually be able to pick the difference. But uh, the great thing about it is the locals are actually very appreciative and very supportive that someone is rollerblading in their town. Um, don't get me wrong. It's, it's the same as going skating in any uh, you know, capital city in the downtown area, the tourists give you hell and they all think it's the funniest joke in the world. But, um, but the locals are very appreciative of it. And there's a certain freedom that I have found being the only skater in town. And I say that in quotation marks because there are other bladers here that I've seen around on occasion. But for the most part, Everyone who sees me skating in Breckenridge looks at me like, like I just landed from Mars or something. Like they haven't seen anything like it in twenty years. I love that feeling. Well, it's it, it's it's fun putting it out there. It's a while since I've lived in a place where I could do that on a regular basis. I mean, when I was living in in Monterey County, I was a fair way out of downtown. It took like thirty minutes to drive there. Um, when I was living in Incline, it was just a tiny little town and uh, most of the hills were deaf, so you had to go out when there were no cars and no people on the street or on the road. But here's different. You can go out any time of day. You can weave in and out of traffic. Um, there's like a free local bus service that'll take you up pretty much any hill in town. And uh, I've worked out a way to link all of those together so that in about an hour, you get to bomb like six hills and you don't have to skate uphill once. <laughs> oh, so, that, fun is being had. That sounds so fun. I know where I live uh, has been enhanced greatly for some some downhill fun, but I, I find that um, 
It's extremely dangerous. Do you wear a helmet when you do it? Um, I, I don't. There are certain things I do wear a helmet for and certain things I don't. So the, the bombing hills, nah. Do you wear a helmet when you ski? Um, on occasions. I, I guess- actually haven't. I haven't thus far this season, but last last season I did pretty much all the time. Um, for me, wearing a helmet skiing is more about who else is going to be on the hill and what could they potentially, <laughs> how badly could they potentially mess it up and and wreck my life. Oh but, yeah, but I'm not I'm not really hitting. I'm not hitting big enough jumps or the rails and stuff yet to the point where I would wear a helmet. I mean, there, there aren't any jumps to speak of at any of the resorts that are open up here just yet. I think that's a good thing. Just getting a general feel for skiing. Um, I was going to say, is is hel- helmets are more accepted in skiing than they are in skating, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Yep, Absolutely. And um, I, someone said it, it wasn't me, but someone said that about scootering, that it's family friendly because helmets are more accepted in that too. That's a, that's a big thing going for an activity. If, if you see most of the participants doing it wearing helmets, it's, uh, it gives parents peace of mind to put, put yeah. their kid in that activity. And I, I don't say this in a derogatory way about... Uh, scootering, but I think one thing that helped scootering in that sense was, you know, when rollerblading, when when aggressive rollerblading uh, hit the hit the scene, it was a pretty young group that were getting it started and getting it off the ground, compared to say BMX freestyle or skateboarding, and then at the time that scootering became popular, it was an even younger group, so. I mean, my experience with scooter riders is that they're usually brought to the skate parks by their parents in the car. You haven't seen any. Um, I've seen some second generation in Kamloops. Oh, don't don't get me wrong. I understand there's guys in their late teens and in their 20s right now that are just destroying everything on scooters. I get that. but But the real boom in popularity was not only as young as rollerbladers were, but even younger. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, actually, there was. I got to the skate park at seven thirty in the morning. Something ridiculous for how cold it was, and there was a family uh, that took three really young kids because I guess it was a. They had school off. Three young kids on scooters, and that there's days where uh, scooters and bikes outnumber boards now, and and you won't see many younger skateboarders. Nice. Um, yeah, I've definitely noticed that. Uh, and I guess it's funny you bring that up because now I think back to when I started rollerblading, I would have been 16. And I think when it, when it split and you were no longer going out and skating the streets with like the guys, you know, hitting cones and doing stairs and carrying a hockey stick and stuff, when it split and you were doing just the tricks, just the aggressive tricks, most of the guys that I would go and skate with were like two or three young, two or three years younger than me. And there wasn't a whole lot of like parental supervision or influence. You might meet their parents if you ended up over at their house at some point, but like 
mum and dad were never there right by their side when when you went to skate no matter where you know and I remember like one kid from the whole state or from the whole kind of you know Brisbane southeast Queensland area whose parents would show up at the contests with him like we were renting cars and you know getting on planes and trains and stuff and showing up by ourselves (laughs) (laughs) That's Seriously, why. I mean, we were we were street kids, basically. You know, we had it. Wasn't a whole. I'm not saying I'm not saying we didn't have parents and they didn't care about us and stuff like that. I'm just saying that they weren't there at the sessions. They weren't there when we were actually rollerblading. Either they didn't approve, or they they just weren't there to approve or disapprove. Um, there was a parent who came and watched his kid, his son, skateboard at the Camelot Park every single day since it opened and uh that kid is now killing the game in los angeles i just saw him like on the monster energy website his name is matt berger and um (laughs) todd just said he was skating the park a a few weeks ago and um he was waxing the fuck out of everything which was really (laughs) funny that the Now the hometown hero comes back from Los Angeles, the big name, and just waxes the fuck out of everything to kill the skate park. Hmm, that's interesting. Oh, man. <laughs> yep. But you, saying that just re- you saying that reminds me of a thought that I had today. Uh, I think I mentioned it has started snowing in, in Breckenridge pretty seriously over the last two or three days. And I'm walking around town after driving over a, a mountain pass with the car pretty much sideways the whole way to get to a resort where there was fresh snow, fresh powder, I want to say maybe like eight inches, 12 inches. And then I get home and I park the car and I go to run errands around town and my boots are sliding on the pavement all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, snow is like God's way of waxing the fuck out of everything. <laughs> It just it makes the whole world slippery and you, you don't have traction doing anything. You just have to get used to like being you know, being not hooked up all the time. Um and that's something I think you brought up on the last one, but I think it's important to say there's like no fixed position in skiing. How someone tried to say that skiing oh, only yeah. has yeah. two we were two talking. We were talking about the the Armada video, Oil and Water. Um, Everyone who's listening, whether you're a skier or not, whether you care or not, just go and watch this half-hour video. It's like the Armada team video for this year. It's called Oil and Water. Um, And it's very well edited, very well put together. Um, And the skiing's, for the most part, amazing. But, But especially the way that it's put together, it'll... It'll make you see the beauty in what these guys are trying to do on skis. So, ah, but long story short, there's a couple of clips in that um, in that video where uh, this one guy on skis is hitting a kink rail and keeping his balance despite the rail being probably a good foot or two off the center of the boot, off the center of the ski, um, and. I mean, this is this is done deliberately. This is this is part of the trick, and it made me. It reminded me of that comment that you hear all the time 
you hear rollerbladers looking at uh, skiing and saying, oh, they only have one grind. And that comment to me comes across exactly the same way as a skateboarder saying about rollerbladers, oh, they're attached to your feet. You're you're trying to judge who someone is and what they're doing from a perspective where you know nothing about what they're doing and how it feels and what it takes to get it done. And it made me realize that you don't have quote unquote one grind on skis. You have literally an infinite number of grinds because you're never locked in. Now, if you look at rollerblading, we have, well, three main ones, but maybe six in total, six different spots, six different positions on the boot where, where you can lock and balance a grind. And every grind we do is a way of combining those six positions on each skate in every combination possible. So although there's a lot there, a lot of variation and a lot of different tricks, there is a finite number. Sooner or later, you're going to have done all the grinds. And this is something that I remember hearing from some rollerbladers back in the day before a lot of the variations got popular was like, oh, what do I do now? I've done all the grinds. And what they meant is they'd taken all those different positions that they could balance and lock in on a rail and combined them with every foot in every possible way and there was nothing left. But when you look at skiers, they literally have an infinite number of different positions that they can get into on the skis and still be sliding down rails, sliding down boxes. And you not only see them do this, but to try and to try and do it yourself or to come to an understanding of the not only the, the skill it takes, but the feeling, the sensation of actually doing them, nothing could be further from the truth than saying that skiers have one grind. And um, that's what really clicked with me. I just recently, that Armada stuff specifically, that's, you know, that's what tipped me over the, the edge in, in wanting to get skis. It's funny, I, I opened the last podcast with, um, you know, last time I talked to you, I never would have thought I'd be just devouring ski films <laughs> and skating on a 273 millimeter frame and thinking I could go possibly even longer. Like I, so much has changed just from me watching the ski videos and skating a longer frame. There's, there's a lot that I connect with and a lot that I realized what I was trying to do on skates very crudely is being done. The spirit of it is being done on, on skis uh, very beautifully. It's almost like they're they're cess sliding at all times, in in some strange way. Like a yeah. Well, it, it's such a different action to to being on rollerblades. When you're on rollerblades, you've got such a short wheelbase that for the most part, it's like doing tricks on a unicycle. You're balancing on this very small area this very small square you know of your wheels that are touching the ground and when you look at uh, a skier they have this this kind of huge rectangle where it stretches out for about a meter in front of you about three feet in front of you it stretches out for about three feet behind you and it doesn't take long until you get that feeling of 
those four points on the perimeter being what you're using to actually control you and what you're using to initiate the different tricks and the different uh, um, techniques. But it's amazing how far you can get away from that central balance point that we just instinctively have to stick to on rollerblades, otherwise you're dead. It's amazing how far you can get away from that and still be in control. And when you start getting away from it and getting your weight out over the tips, getting your weight out over the tails in certain situation, situations, um, it opens up a whole bunch of new doors and new opportunities to, wow, well, now I'm in a position where I can do this. Now I'm in a position where I can do that. And um, I can see why they have a low impression of like snowblades, ski boards, because none of the tricks and styles that have been developed in skiing over the last, let's say, 10 years, none of them are even possible on a ski board. It's not a question of not having the skill or the balance to do it. You, you literally can't do them. <laughs> and this naturally translates to their perception of rollerblades, I would think. It, I'm sure it does, and I'm sure the history of of ski boards and of uh, line and of rollerblading, I'm sure that all ties in to kind of one grand picture for them that those little short things are not only are they in the past, but they're a part of the past that we'd like to kind of erase and forget that it happened because I can honestly see why skiers would think that what they're doing in this day and age on skis evolved from what skiing used to be and what snowboards are and how the technology from snowboarding changed what was possible on skis. And they can, they can quite easily look at, at snowblades, at ski boards and think those things don't even belong in our progression. Like they don't play a part in our history. And um, they can talk. They can talk A, B, C, D, E from skiing through snowboarding into modern day, you know, freestyle skiing, free skiing, without ever bringing up snowblades. Those things are, you know, they're out in left field. They they didn't help us get to where we were. And whether or not that's entirely true, eh, it's debatable. But I can see how they would feel that way. Because when you, when you watch snowbladers, for the most part, whenever I'm watching snowbladers, they're throwing misty flips, right? Yeah. No offense. No offense. But you very rarely see people throw a misty flip on full-length skis. If they do, sorry to it's interrupt. Doable, you just very rarely see it. He- because of the way the skis work, most of the spins and most of the flips you're leaning back into when you come off the lip. Yeah. You know, they're doing corks, they're doing flats, they're doing backflip, whatever's. Very rarely is it is it forward. I can't but remember. On, but on the snowblades, it's the thing to do because <laughs> because they work more like rollerblades. I I saw. Um, I can't remember if it was in the level one video or if it was in traveling circus, but there's this dude who has this skill. Um, where when they do do misty flips, they do this thing where they almost 
dig completely into their edges going sideways and do a oh, misty nice. flip. Have you seen that trick? No, but I, I kind of get what you mean. That they use the like digging into the snow and stopping to throw their momentum. I, and, I get what you mean. And it would almost be necessary because we kind of do the same thing on rollerblades if we're throwing like misties or bios downstairs, like off a flat surface. You, but, your skates aren't facing forward when you throw it. Yeah, it's true. And that's how I tried to throw my first Bio 540 on Snowblades and posted that video recently. I fucking ate shit because my, my edges <laughs> dug in. It, it reminded me of um, I got a chance to use some, uh, some ski boards, some Snowblades. I want to say late 90s, like 99 or something like that. First time I'd ever been anywhere near snow. This was in Australia. And um, I remember doing a 540 off like a, a small jump, you know, just kind of like a, like a pyramid jump where you could land a fair way down the, down the wedge on the other side. And I got the rotation and I got the landing, but when I got the landing and I was going that fast backwards, I kind of freaked out because it, it's harder to keep looking over your, your shoulder on the skis than it is on the skates. you got to put a lot more body into it because your feet are closer together, I think. Your feet aren't split, something like that. And now, is the, the, the ski boots don't allow you to split your feet in the same way. So uh, like your body has to do the, the work to get your head around. And so this relates to another thing that I thought was great that you said. We were talking about the Haffy uh, Mega Ramp edit and that people did the myth that rollerblading is easy, that what he's doing, because he's landing on such a small base, is incredible. But it's so hard for people to know how difficult it is to land on that little base. Um, he's almost making, you know, he could be hitting that ramp in longer frames, but he doesn't. Um, yeah. Well, it, it comes back to what I was saying about the wheelbase. You know, we're, we're basically riding a unicycle as far as balance is concerned. You know, if you're on a unicycle with like a 20-inch wheel and the tire pressure is, you know, reasonable, 30, 40 pounds per square inch, your, your contact patch is probably as long as the wheelbase of a rollerblade skate. And you've probably seen some of those clips of the guys riding like the unicycles on like mountain bike trails and stuff. They have like a big wheel. So like the contact patch they have is, I would say, considerably longer than what a rollerblade skate is. And um, I, th I think our community kind of fell for that myth or fell for that, that line about rollerblading being easy and never really compared it against some of the things that it gets compared against regularly and said, well, there's actually certain aspects of it that make it a lot harder. I mean, A, we've got a balance on this tiny wheelbase. And B, when that goes wrong, we hit the ground really hard and in a big hurry. So to, to get to get to Haffy's level is hard enough as it is. But then to get on that mega ramp and like 360, like the long gap, which is probably like 70 feet or something, and come into that quarter pipe, that transition with the speed that he comes into it at, just maintaining your balance, just staying off your feet and keeping yourself, you know, wheels wheels down 
is I mean, it's amazing. He he's literally on technology that's harder to use on that ramp. Like he it could be Yeah, well I mean when when Matt Hoffman started making his own frames, his own his own uh, bicycle brand, the first frame they brought out, I think had a wheelbase about three or four inches longer than what freestyle bikes had at the time. And he made it that way because that's the way it needed to be for his style of riding. And it very quickly became embraced by the people that could ride at the same level and with the same style. And it was a similar thing with the skateboards. When those guys started skating on the, the big air ramps, the skateboards got a lot longer. The wheelbase of the boards got a lot longer because they had to deal with those G-forces. They had to deal with how quickly you come into that transition. And both of those sports have an advantage where on BMX, you've got your hands and your feet down. So you've got better balance because you've got more control over your weight distribution between the front and rear wheels. And then skateboarding, they've got the weight distribution between the front and rear wheels too. You just, you know, you just move your weight back onto your back foot or move your weight forward onto your forward foot. And both of them have got a wheelbase that's very considerably longer than what Chris Haffey has when he hits that transition at the same speed, head on, <laughs> on, you know, on a pair of skates where the wheelbase is, what, 10 inches maybe. And now, apart from unicycles and rollerblades doesn't every other sport have a longer base to it i guess i mean i mean if you were on a pair of heelys maybe <laughs> but the people on heelys split their feet so <laughs> even uh scooter their base well yeah and and it when you stop worrying about your balance, you can focus a lot more energy and a lot more attention on other areas, other aspects of what you're doing. But, but in rollerblading, we're forced to keep focusing it on our balance all the time. You know, yeah, you get experienced at it, but it never really goes away. You have to do it all the time. If anyone remembers watching Sesamora uh, uh, skate vert, especially if you got to see it live, like the warm up runs, you know the the sessions leading up to, you know, the finals and the big event and stuff like that. He had really tiny feet and he was trying to pump the transition so hard. He would loop out all the time. Just, really? just loop out and get into the craziest out of control positions you've ever seen. Um, but that's, that's what he wanted. I mean, he, he wanted that much pump, that much speed, that much air and, he had to skate the skates that fit his foot and they had a tiny wheelbase and there was no way around it. Okay, now, rollerblades, you have to give up something to get another thing. And you can't have, you can't have both. You can't, you can't have an amazingly great grinding skate um, with giant wheels and a big wheelbase. So, um, could you You're ever saying that? I'm not saying that. Oh, <laughs> well, it's Just, it's possible. Reflect those are Joey's words, Your Honor. <laughs> okay, well, if it came down to it, um, I could still Royale. Uh, you know, 
You're right. You know what? I'm I'm big on the idea of not giving up anything to get anything. Um, and a great a great example of this is Walt Austin. Right? That was one of the things that I loved about his skating, loved about his sections, is that I think a lot of people were of the attitude that like he couldn't grind as good as the other pros or the other skaters. And that's nonsense, man. He just spent less time doing it because he spent more time doing a broader, wider range of tricks. And when you watch some of his sections, it's so amazing because no one trick takes precedence over the other. And the whole section is just balanced out by him having amazing skill, no matter what it is that you are watching him do on these skates. Um, my $25 price of admission to the feet download was worth it to see um, a Walt Austin trick in big wheels at an old Atlanta spot. Oh, nice. Yes. I didn't know that was in there. It was in there. He has a couple other tricks, but there's this one specifically that was um, very new school of him. Did Please tell me you saw that Dom West edit that got released today. No, it's on my list of things to watch. Uh, oh, actually, after man. I talk to you, yeah, it's that okay. that and the ski film that uh, you sent I, me. I'm I don't watch. want to spoil it, <laughs> but Scott Crawford and Blake Dennis are in it. Oh shit! Scott Crawford is uh, one of those skaters that I didn't appreciate until I kind of got to this age. That I realized he was so far ahead of his time in terms of um, being good at everything. Because um, I always thought of him as just a vert skater when I was younger, but I look back at some of his interviews and his ads and stuff, and he was very well-rounded. Back in the day, that was the deal with all the Australian skaters. Um, because because you came over to the U.S. and you were you know competing or whatever, you got thought of as like a comp skater or a vert skater, and all those all those old school dudes were destroying street in Australia in the mid '90s. But they would come here and get called, you know, vert skaters or comp skaters. It was pretty funny. Because <laughs> oh, Dave Payne, you know, didn't have a, a, a three or four month window to point a camera at them. They were they were vert skaters. Oh, I can't wait to watch that now. Um, um, uh, oh, go ahead. You've seen... Um, I know they've got a short section in the bottom line, but... They get quite a lot of clips in the first video groove as well. It wasn't called VG1, but I guess technically it's VG1. Like Scott Crawford and uh, John Pollard and Blake Reed and all those guys. Oh, yeah. Yep. Like old school Manly Blades crew. And uh, so They said it was a nice, uh, a nice throwback for me because A, they skated uh, Avalon Park, which I've never seen any other rollerbladers skate ever. Um and it's a it's a really cruisy local park. It's like fifty yards from the beach, and uh, it's a really cool town. So I'm uh, glad they uh, glad they made it out there. The vibe comes across in the edit. So I was Would, feeling very homesick when I watched it. But no one skates Avalon Park because it's like heavy locals only vibe, or just no. It's 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 middle of nowhere. You've got to drive like ninety minutes out of Sydney to get there. And it was, it's one of these towns that like used to be like a sleepy little uh, beach town where a bunch of hippies lived and stuff. And then like the money moved in, you know, 
Uh, so, like, no rollerbladers actually live there. I, I doubt it. I don't know. Damn, I can't wait to watch that now. Nice, nice place, though. I mean, it's, it's just a cruisy little park. It's not, it's not the best park you've ever seen. But if you're there with your mates, it's a, you know, a fun place to spend an afternoon. Yeah, that's... Uh... I'm, I'm amazed how well it comes across in the edit, what it's really like being, you know, being a skater and, and in Australia and just going out and having those chill sessions with your mates. And, I mean, you're doing hard tricks, but you're not, like, putting on a demo or, like, battling each other or anything. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I definitely um, got have got uh, British Columbia summertime vibes from some of the Australia stuff. I remember VG20, some of the bonus, the bonus-like <laughs> extended Australia section. Just some of those parks that aren't, they're not perfect, they're not built very well, but it, you can tell that everyone was hanging out there for a really long time and there would just be highlights here and there and people would take their skates off and put them back on and it wasn't like a let's skate super hard for 45 minutes type thing. I, I won't. I won't say that the, the 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 cult and the unwritten rules aren't in Australia, because you know it's always been an influence. But I think it's less of an influence, especially with like the older the older guys. Well, you look at how like CJ CJ gets a pass because even though he was really young at the time, he's like OG. Even though he was like like eleven or twelve or something, dude was skating in the mid nineties and sessioning with all the all the guys, all the names you know from way back then. Yeah. So I know he's still he's still young now compared to me and compared to the OG Australian guys, but he he has a connection to them and it, it comes across in the way that he the way that he presents himself as a skater doesn't take himself too seriously, doesn't take the tricks too seriously, and yet has developed that that talent and that style where he's just got everything on lock. Yeah, they must be so proud of him. I remember uh, a dude from Australia who used to skate way back in the day who was visiting Kamloops. I, I was like, you know who's killing it right now? And he was like, CJ. He just <laughs> knew. Like even people who don't skate know about CJ. I don't know how he knew, but he knew. So I, I don't I don't know what that's about. If that's like a Australian pride thing that you follow, uh, you still follow <laughs> skating even if you don't do it anymore. It was when when he was really young. CJ was that 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 little grommet who was just getting pats on the back from everyone. Like you've got it. We love what you're doing, and one day you're. You know, you're gonna blow us all away. So, oh shit. So, okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. He had to do the work to make all that happen, but that's kind of the point I'm making. He didn't. He didn't pop up overnight in like you know 2005 or something like that. Everyone knew about him in the mid 90s. He was skating and sessioning and competing as you know an 11 year old or whatever, way uh, back. So that's how he would have known him. I see a lot of similarities between. Australia and Canada, just in terms of uh, the diverse uh, group of skaters, especially the the first Australia boom, 
I look at how different everyone was style-wise that came out of Australia. I think of Canada now, how there's just there's so many different skaters and styles from Canada. Nice. I don't know what that is, but um, I don't see it in other places. I see things kind of blending together. Um, okay. But well, this, the, the, the the unwritten rules and and you know the the cult mentality, it's a lot stronger here. It's a lot more. You know, dogmatic here. I remember being so depressed after uh, going to my first barn burner, and that was my last too. That was my like first and last American event. <laughs> that I remember, like, I remember thinking, like, am I even a rollerblader? Like, I was so confused. I <laughs> do you even blade, bro? <laughs> That's what it was like. The only highlight, and we didn't get the podcast with him. Eric Shrine gave me props on – I did like a crazy swivel 360 to Macchio down a ledge. Uh-huh. And Eric Shrine came up later and was like, that crazy spin thing you did to the Macchio, that was sick, dude. And like very genuinely said it. But other than that, I felt like I was not part of that group. Like we're talking really, really, really intense uh, prove-yourself park skating um, it, the vibe was heavy. While while you're dropping names, I couldn't agree. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with Eric Shrine. Um, I I met him and Robert Lavanos once at uh, Woodward, and I had met enough San Diego skaters by that time to have like a like a preconceived idea of who they were going to be and what they were going to be like. And they were way cooler and way more laid back, and I couldn't agree more. Him coming up and saying that to you with authenticity, he really meant it. It was, it was, uh, yeah, that's who he is. Those things um, that I've kind of thought about that moment quite a bit and tried to apply that to all areas of life. You know, if you see somebody do something that you think is cool not not all rollerblading related but at giving credit to people and giving a little compliment i don't know even just little things like did you get a haircut or are those new shoes i don't know that's <laughs> <laughs> that stuff's important sometimes it's like in this day and age uh, people are so shocked when you uh give compliments in person mm-hmm. We're so used to liking things on Facebook all the time or typing our comment that it seems like a brave act sometimes to give a compliment. And it goes such a long way. People relate to each other differently now. Yeah, man. uh, I'll I'll tell you one thing about that. Um, I've... One thing I've really been enjoying in the skiing edits that I've been watching lately is the way that I'll use the GoPro cameras, um, especially like the backcountry skiers, you know, doing the cliff drops and the pillow lines and stuff like that. Um, it's something that you don't see a lot of in rollerblading. I know Roman, uh, Roman Abbott's been doing a lot of it lately, and I'm really enjoying that. But um but for the most part, the idea of like filming ourselves and covering ourselves, it always happens with with a with a third person angle or a third person perspective. You know, 
we we know that you have the skater, we know that you have the filmer, and then we are the observer who's on the other side. And I think it goes a long way to really changing the way that we see ourselves and maybe the way that we relate to other skaters. Um, you know, often you can be at a session and it just feels like like a bunch of random individuals. And they won't, like you're saying, they won't cross that 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 gap. They won't make that difference of, hey, man, it's good to see you out here skating again. Um, that trick you did was awesome. Or, or, I mean, even something that's that's more casual than that, just acknowledging someone, hey, I remember you from skating here forever ago. Welcome back. Stuff like that. Um, so watching these guys in the ski edits, you get a you get a first person perspective and it never really did it for me watching like backcountry edits where the cameraman was like on the next cliff down the range, you know, panning the camera as someone skis down the mountain, but the cameraman's like a mile away. That never really did it for me. It never made me want to go and ski like they were skiing, want to go and do what they were doing. But watching like GoPro footage of them doing the same thing. I love it. I love it. And it makes me want to get out there. It makes me want to do that style of skiing. And are you talking? So I started wondering the same thing about skating because when you look at like the, the clips that Roman uh, shoots, you know, some of it's first person perspective, but at the very least when he's holding like the, the, the pole with the GoPro on the end, you get to see how he's doing what he's doing and how much he enjoys doing what he's doing. I mean, I've skated around holding one of those poles, but I don't know that I had the same expression on my face and no way was I doing anything near the same tricks as he was doing. And, and if I were new to rollerblading, if I was a person who was still in that stage of like considering rollerblading or maybe hadn't even considered it yet, watching that kind of thing would push me over the edge seeing how much fun the guy had and what it was like actually being in the air upside down, spinning around and pulling it out smoothly and rolling away and going straight into another one. So you're talking more of the, the you're more of a fan of the selfie stick angle than the, than like the chest mount or helmet. Uh, mount. Well, the, the chest mount's weird because like that doesn't give you the, the perspective of the skier or of the of the skater i think it's probably the helmet mounts that do that the best but um but yeah you definitely want to have that perspective where instead of you watching someone doing skating tricks you're in that first person perspective where it's actually you you know if you have a big if you have a big tv in front of you and you're watching like a first person point of point of view edit it puts you it puts you right in their shoes it puts you right in their in, in their position so you can kind of judge whether or not you would get that get that sensation and get that joy out of doing the same thing i think once the audio gets better on the gopro or if people start recording really clean uh audio sources that they sync up with the gopro then yeah. i'm all for it i think that's the one thing still missing from it that it could just be my experience of when I'm out skating is that the audio is so important. The sounds that our skates make and, and you know, the sounds well, that skis make. 
we we could probably do it because I know you can plug external microphones into them. But to do that, you would need to have like the casing that wasn't waterproof. Oh, so probably not going to have a whole lot of skiers or surfers or that kind of thing doing the good sound. I don't know, but I I checked that out on mine. Like you can you can plug an external microphone into it and you can put that thing anywhere, but then you're using a housing that won't keep out the snow and the water and stuff. I, you know, I'm still. I'm not sold on the GoPro, but you are right. Some of the ski video stuff, I think Tanner Hall specifically, was it he was in oil and water and had some some stuff. Yeah, he had some clips in there, yep. Um, where I think it looked like he was in powder up to his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> and to try and think of what that would feel like, yeah, there's no other angle that you could get where you're going to be like, holy shit, that powder goes up to his shoulder. Because it always just looks like snow flying all over the place when it's from a distance. Yeah. Uh, some of the cliff drops, too. Uh, that angle works really, really well. You get to see, like, their arms, like, mm-hmm. uh, the, the rolling down the windows. Yeah. And, and, and you get to see how strategic it is. Like, they're not just... They're not just picking a random spot on the cliff and jumping off it. There's a lot of planning and a lot of strategy that goes into what way they're going to go. If it's not quite how they thought it would get, was going to be, do they have a plan B? If they make a mistake halfway down, can they correct from that? And how does it change the plan? How does it change the strategy? And especially with the GoPro edits, you can kind of see all of that going through their mind and their body while they're doing it all because I can't imagine the adrenaline rush. Do you know what I mean? You're literally in a position where if you make the wrong choice and you, you know, lean on the wrong edge or whatever, like you're, you're going to die. Um, that makes me think there was, um... I, I understand rollerbladers saying that, that they don't know why skiers use poles, on the groomers and in the park, I agree. I don't know why skiers use poles, right? Unless you're on a ski that's very long and it's got an edge that you need to hold, you know, or you're dead. It doesn't. It doesn't seem necessary. But you put those guys out in that position, they're very, very necessary. They're lifesavers, you know. Um, kind of related to that with the poles. Uh fashion over function ski gear do you want to talk about that at all yeah i've been been in the market for buying uh, you know skis and equipment and clothing and all that kind of stuff for the season and um there's a there's a really good shop right here in town uh here in breckenridge for buying for buying the kind of ski gear for uh for what i'm gonna want to do and it was it was fun walking in because it, it was like you know back in the day walking into skate biz in Brisbane or walking into Manly Blades. It's, it's been a while since I've lived in a place that you can walk in and be surprised by the stuff on the shelf that you didn't know you needed until there it is in front of you. Um, Revolution in Phoenix is was fantastic but there weren't really surprises there. Like I kind of knew what to expect when I was going in. And even if there were new things on the shelf, it wasn't 
it wasn't anything that kind of you know blew your hair back but i walk in here and there's all sorts of things for skiing that i'm looking at and i'm like wow there is so much there's so much function that's designed into the outerwear and into the gear to make your experience and to make your your day skiing better and rollerblading just doesn't seem to pay that any attention at all i mean the 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 range of designs in in jackets or in pants in skiing and snowboarding it's amazing and all the different ways that that gear is going to help you manage all your stuff have everything right place at the right time for you and you know in many situations even save your life and you look at rollerblading and it's like a stock you know it's a stock t-shirt that someone bought a hundred of and printed a picture on the front and it makes you wonder like if companies were putting more function into the clothing that we wear would it be doing better and I'm not just saying would the clothing company be doing better but would we be doing better as skaters if the gear was more functional for us yeah I can see why sweatpants were popular <laughs> and um, and Senate tried to do some kind of sportier stuff when they when they rebranded their team you know things with drawstrings and lighter fabrics but that also could have been you know the gap may have been doing stuff like that at the time um, yeah. for all I know that that at more athletic jersey type things and lighter fabrics. I do think I always made the joke that Shane Coburn was going to release like the Shadow Active pants or something like a like a pant with a dumb name that was really light material <laughs> and felt really good to skate in. Like I was yeah, ready to buy he that had a shit pack for dumb names, didn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I would have bought that shit probably. Um, <laughs> and now uh, actually skiing has influenced even the way that i think about clothing a little bit too not not to the point where i'm going to have giant things hanging off of me but um i can see why it why they they have like a base layer and then they have a giant thing over top that fits loose and lets them move really well you know there there's a lot of guys that are moving away from like the really giant stuff but yeah it's still not going to restrict movement like it's it's never it's never going to get tight, so to speak. It's never going to get to the point where it's purely fashion, and you actually can't move the way you need to move anymore. I was watching a um, a Seth Morrison Oakley, uh, like a, about the design of his jacket. Uh -huh. I don't know if you ever saw the Taco Time or Taco Town commercial on SNL where they were making fun yeah. of like a burrito that had. It was um, dipped in. It was deep fried and then wrapped in a pancake and wrapped in cheese and stuff. Wrapped in <laughs> making me hungry, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was the Seth Morrison jacket. I swear they just kept going through like all the different layers for it and uh, and what all the oh, layers it was did. Just like rad overkill. But it was amazing that 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 industry and that he's able to design a pro jacket that has like eight fucking layers to it and that it's probably like $500 and that people are going to buy it. Um, I just think that's so cool that, that 
that they have that that budget and that and that one dude can design because I think uh, who's who's the guy that can go huge in the half pipe? Um, Simon Dumont. Simon Dumont. Yeah. yeah, like they had videos where people were like explaining why they designed things the way they did, and it was so interesting that it wasn't the boots or the skis or the bindings. It was they were talking about the the clothes that they were wearing. I thought I thought that that was so cool. Yeah, it, and it's it's literally like functional gear i mean uh, when i was skating like the like the asa comps there were a lot of guys who would wear like i mean you had to wear a helmet but outside of that there were a lot of guys who would just wear a pair of jeans and they had learned how to bail all of their tricks to the jeans and not really need pads of any sort and yet it never really went any further than that as far as well let's make these guys a pair of jeans that that works better for it you know they don't rip or they slide or whatever let's make sure that the pockets aren't here where they're sliding because if they've got a pair of keys in those pockets they're like you know they're going to cut themselves up let's move this here let's put that there and it's so that way with skiing it's not even funny like anything that you have with you or on you during a ski day not only is there going to be a pocket in your jacket for it, but the pocket is going to be in the precise location that you would reach for it, that you would go looking for it. I'm surprised they don't make like left-handed and right-handed jackets because it seems to me that, that the vast majority of the jackets are literally right-handed jackets. And that sounds like the weirdest thing to say, but as you're reaching for the things that you're going to need through the day, you know, your pass, your phone, your this, that, the rest, whatever. Every everything's right where you would want it to be, if you were the guy designing the jacket. God, it's almost overwhelming though, knowing that I'm gonna <laughs> be buying a pair of snow pants and a winter jacket. It the options make my head spin because I tried to just look at some basic low cost stuff at Winners, which is like kind of a discount store, and even then, there was like. I didn't know what brand was snowboarding and what was skiing, and I didn't know what length I would want for for movement because I know some people prefer like longer jackets. I didn't know what material, and everything seemed pretty nice. Um, I didn't want to commit to something that was going to look terrible in three years. Um, here's here's the trick. Are you ready? Yeah. Get the get the bare basics to begin with, right? Skis, boots, bindings, bare basics. Show up at the mountain wearing a bunch of stuff that looks like you just pulled it out of a Goodwill bin and find the rich kids. Okay, And when you find that crew, when you find that group of the rich kids, just offer to buy like their, their old gear, last season's gear. Oh, fuck yeah. Just be like, yeah, you look, you look about my size, my height, my weight. You look like you just spent, you know, a thousand bucks on all this stuff. Uh, let me uh, let me cop your 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 pants and your jacket from last year. <laughs> whatever Ooh, kids are bucks. done deal. Whatever kids are putting on that ski premiere <laughs> on the twentieth, I guarantee they have jackets and pants for me. <laughs> or just like just like cruise the lost and found at the ski resort for the first week or two. Yeah, yeah. All my money should be on my skis and bindings. <laughs> I was able to get um. It- my it doesn't have to be as expensive as it can be. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people 
speak about skiing being radically expensive. Um, it's not cheap. I mean, you're not going to go. It's not like blading where you could buy a pair off eBay for twenty bucks and you're good to go. But um, but it doesn't have to be that expensive. It's true. You can you can, you can find ways. Your entry point you're cheap. talking about though. I, you're yeah. you're talking about the entry point into skiing. I think yeah, I'm really like, jaded. Like me trying to sell you on those beat up skis on eBay. Yeah, and like, it's tough. You could have a pair for you and a pair for Todd. No one's bid in like a week. If you offered that guy sixty bucks, you'd have two pair of beat up skis. How beat up bucks. is beat up though for skis? That's what was throwing me off. In, in the park, it's not going to make any difference. Really. Really? Oh, and they'll definitely be faster than my snowblades and sled dogs. That's for sure. Well, I mean, you can you can wax them up and maybe get some like repairs done to the base, like uh, like they melt up UHMW and put it in the cracks and stuff like that. Yeah, you can make them fast. What you're not going to make them is you're not going to be able to carve edges like quickly. Like if you're going down a groomer at 50 mile an hour, you're in trouble on these beat up skis. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you if you hit some ice while you're carving, you're in trouble on these skis. But they all get like that after people have done a few rails and a few boxes on them. There's there's like no ski built that you could go and hit a rail a couple of dozen times that's still going to have an edge for hammering down the the big runs. So that's the point I'm trying to make. You buy these things for cheap. You take them to your repair shop and drop another 20, 40 bucks. I don't know. And you're good. And they're already beat up. You would just be doing that to a new pair of skis anyway. I think I'm starting to get jaded because um, like my skate setup is now really expensive. And <laughs> <laughs> and I'm enjoying skating more than I ever have. So I start to think like, am I not going to enjoy skiing if I don't put enough money into my initial setup? Like I want to have something uh, that's that's quality enough. I, th- I know boots are important. I know boots are really important, but that's easy. I just want something with the intuition liner. Um, and I know the cl- <laughs> the classic full tilt shell should be trustworthy enough. Um, the bindings just have to be good enough. I guess, yeah, you're right. I don't have to sink in as much for skis. It's, 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 you don't have to do it the expensive way, right? Yeah. Now, the reason I was trying to sell you on those cheap skis is purely what I said in the park, it won't make a difference. It, It really won't. If you're, if you're trying to ski the whole mountain, it will make a difference. But what you could do is, you could buy these things dirt cheap. And then if you're going to buy a pair of new skis, keep those out of the park altogether. Don't let them don't let them ever touch a rail. Get a pair of, you know, all mountain skis or a pair of powder skis or something. And then just keep uh just keep hammering away on the beat up ones until they're broke, you know, until they're falling apart. Um because there was a just- and at least by then you would know whether you wanted to do it or not. I mean, yeah. you might do this. You might do this for a week or two and be like, you know what? I've got a good idea now of what this is going to be like in the years ahead, and I don't really want to do it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, well, I felt that way about skydiving. I was planning on like doing a whole bunch of jumps and getting licensed, buying my own, you know, rig, so it was really cheap per jump. 
And I never got that far because after I'd done it like five or six times, it just wasn't that, I wasn't that into it. Well, I skied a lot when I was younger. I, I committed to sled dogs for almost a full season or two um, and used them a lot and, and snowbladed quite a bit in the late 90s. So now that I know I was doing it wrong, um, <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I'm doing it right, I'm pretty sure I, I clearly remember at the end of the day getting the same feeling from a good skate session at the end of a, a, a day on the hill. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. So I'm sure uh, I'll get hooked pretty easily. For the record, I don't think that snowblading is doing it wrong, but you're, you're limiting yourself for no reason. In the mid-90s, if you had to choose between snowblades and like, you know, like race skis, like, you know, 200 centimeter, stiff as hell, no side cut race skis, okay, it makes sense. But with the way that ski design is today, there's just no reason to be on the short things. There's there's no advantage. Um, and this is a good transition because I was talking to Todd about like how many possible uh, setups there there could be that you could experiment with for skates now because we don't fucking know. We thought that like the 80 millimeter rockard was going to be the shit that we were skating for. Um, the next five or 10 years or whatever. And then this other setup comes along and then we're like, Oh shit, we were wrong. This is going to be really good to make videos off this setup for a while. There's so many possibilities. And then I'm sure there'll be something else. And, um, I was saying that, um, J Jason Leventhal, um, using skis for half of the day and a snowboard for half the day. And then Shane McConkie doing the water ski experiment. And then the Royal Canadian, what was the, the, the ones who made the Solomon ski, it kind of happened all around the same time, didn't it? That yeah. everyone was kind of like late, they were... Late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, everyone had the same idea, but they had like it hadn't, hadn't hit a standard yet. They were all kind of experimenting with the same shit and wanting to get to the same place. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of different styles of skiing. So I don't know that they were necessarily all the same place, but um, but there was definitely this idea of if we start tweaking the specifications, we can really do anything we want on these skis, and we can make them we can make them work for any condition. And I I do think they got a lot of that from snowboarding. I do think they got a lot of that from Jake Burton. He'd already put the you know, put the work in, put the design in, so to speak. But it's definitely there if you're going to change the flex, if you're going to change the width, if you're going to change the side cut, if you're going to change the, you know, the rocker and the camber profiles. You, you can make the ski do anything you want. And we can do and that with really skates. too much with, with, with frames and with wheels to make the same thing happen. But, but we can. Now that I've tried it, it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one thing that occurred to me with metric was like, you know, I had a basic structure here where you could just drill the holes in the sidewalls anywhere you chose and basically put the wheels anywhere you want. I mean, you, you could, you could change any aspect of any specification on the whole skate, you know, frame, wheel, width, whether you wanted the frame, you know, 
angled to one side or a bit taller in the back. You could change anything. And it was like I was saying about Tom Curran, just getting creative for the sake of seeing what was possible and seeing what new things he hadn't considered that he could do once he had a crazy enough shape to allow him to do it. He wanted to kind of stumble onto, you know, new tricks or new styles just by riding really random, crazy shaped surfboards. And people looked at him and were like, you're, you've gone off the deep end, mate. But, but it totally changed his style and it totally changed the way he was able to use certain breaks and certain spots and surf them in ways no one else ever had. And did he come on a standard eventually? Uh, I mean, I assume he always had them, but he always had the the weird ones too, you know. Like I don't I don't know if his if his daily driver ever ever strayed too far from the norm, but there was always some there was always some different shape to ride and see what was possible or how it would change the feel, how it would change the sensation of being out there, especially when you take into the fact in, into consideration the fact that every break is different and the conditions are always different. And that's another thing about skiing, you know, it's, it's very different to rollerblading in the sense that the conditions are always changing, they're never the same. You can hit a jump in the park and then get the lift up and 10 or 15 minutes later, it's not the same jump. It doesn't, it doesn't work the same. It doesn't feel the same. Oh, I'm, t- I'm going to die a couple of times. <laughs> the first time uh, we watched Todd try a grind, it was in like rental old skis and it was the best yard sale you've ever seen. <laughs> he lost everything. It was uh, it was such a fail in terms of where he put his balance on his on his skis. Yeah, the the world moves. Uh, <laughs> you come down and you don't know where you are. Yeah. <laughs> but while we're on the subject of uh, frames and putting the wheels in different locations, yes, um, yeah, I think Create Originals is doing a great job of their frame where the wheels just kind of hover underneath the boot. Oh yeah, did you see yeah. um, Josh's setup? Josh Silver's Amazing. setup. Yeah, I didn't like I didn't like the color. I'd like a color that was a little more uh, uh, opaque than that. But um, I posted mine, and I, you know, I was hoping other people were gonna be posting their their uh, create original suspension frame setups. They, but they look pretty light, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like <laughs> the ride height looks different from from mine uh, as opposed to Josh's, but um, we'll see. I mean, when other people post theirs. I wanted to get like a page going where everybody can just start posting their their setups because I'm sure there's like lots of different ones, uh, lots of different ways you can set it up too. I couldn't tell whether Josh had the long ones or the short ones. Uh, he skates short frames, so um, I can't remember how many sizes are available. It seems pretty open for sizing. Like you could you could space the wheels quite a bit. So, um, jo- jokes aside, I do have a serious point to make about uh, uh, about the CRS frames and uh, what's happening or what's not happening. And I hope I say this right because I'm gonna I'm gonna piss off a whole bunch of people one way or another. Let's do it. When they announced 
the design of the frame and the fact that they were going to uh, put up a Kickstarter page for it. I was really excited because I've been wanting for a long time to to see and to participate in this revolution where the older skaters, the skaters who are still very passionate about skating but are uh, grown adults now, can take control of our own industry, take power of our over our own industry and our own future, and really start making a future for ourselves. Uh, so the idea of skaters owning companies and using uh, crowdfunding, using means to develop our industry and develop our community as a whole, I'm very, very passionate about. So I invested. And the biggest reason that I invested was not so much to get the frames, but to see that process become a part of who we are. We're willing to support each other financially. We're willing to combine our passion into making really cool things like this happen. And I understand that things don't go according to plan when you are uh, making products for rollerbladers. Um, and that goes into the funding, it goes into the production, it goes into the management, it goes into everything that you can imagine. You don't have anything handed to you on a, on a, a silver plate when you're trying to start a company in rollerblading. You've got, to, you've got to fight for every part of it. Unless you just want to sign up with one of the guys that already owns rollerblading, but that's a whole other story. So... I think that everyone that did invest, whether they invested actual money in, through the Kickstarter or whether they just were invested as far as wanting to see the frames become reality and wanting to see a quote-unquote skater-owned company make it, have become very disillusioned and very disappointed with the way that it's been handled. And I'm not referring to the time period I'm not referring to us having to wait for the frames, not having the frames yet. To be honest, I'm not even really referring to us potentially never getting the frames. I know that came as a surprise to some people that Kickstarter wasn't a mail order company where you had actually paid and you got a receipt and you were owed a pair of frames. It's not like that at all. You donate and hopefully you receive your reward in return. And if you don't, that's life because that's the way that startup companies work. You're, you're donating to a cause. The part that's really got me disappointed is that the guys behind this frame and this company that we put our faith in and that we put our trust in have totally cut us off and totally abandoned us as if as if we weren't invested, as if we weren't part of the movement and part of the, the project of seeing these frames come to fruition. Now, if we were still receiving updates where they were saying, look, we've had some trouble with the manufacturer, um, they're actually not gonna be able to deliver what they promised, 
So unfortunately, we won't be able to deliver the frames. We're very sorry. Uh, we wish things could have been different, but they can't. That's life. You're not getting your frames. But thank you very much for believing in us. At least that would show that that they still understood that we were invested in the project and in the future of their company. But to cut all of those people off entirely and not update them and not keep them included in what's happening, it poses the question why? Because up until recently, I have felt like I understood the motivations of the guys behind Create Originals. I have felt like I understood what it is they were trying to achieve and where it is that they and the company were going in the context of rollerblading as a whole. But the way that this situation's being handled, it doesn't seem likely that people are gonna get their frames. It doesn't seem likely that the company has a future. And I would say that they've gone so far that no other rollerblading company is going to be able to use Kickstarter to fund any similar project. And that's the really scary part because the part that I was investing in was not just seeing one company make one frame. The part that I was investing in was seeing our adult bladers who are still passionate about this and still want to make something of it be able to use those crowdfunding sources to make things happen in skating. And that's not going to happen anytime in the near future. What do you think is the next step in this whole thing then it seems like I, I don't i don't think there is a next step i think it's done i think it's done i think they have sunk the opportunity the chance that any other truly skater-owned company has of using kickstarter using any other crowdfunding source to get a similar project happening i mean you know being able to charge a few dollars for for edits and videos that you put up on on Vimeo or on wherever, hey, that's great, but that's not really producing anything. It's not, it's not gonna create like a stream of revenue for, for skaters and for companies and for the growth of an industry. It's just entertaining the people that are already skaters. So, I mean, ask yourself what would happen if, if you're one of the people who invested in CRS and you now have nothing and you're not going to get anything and you're not even going to get an answer as to what happened, if someone else did exactly the same thing with a different frame design or a different wheel design or some new idea for how they're going to make a skate, there's no way you'd support it. Because how could you trust it? You've already been let down once. You've already had that faith and that trust destroyed once. Why is roller? It, it was by an entirely different group of people who perhaps had an entirely different motivation for doing what they did. It's done. It's over. <laughs> it's a smoking 
uh, cesspool of uh, disappointment. Now, here's the part where I'm really going to piss people off. Um, I made a, a decision a while ago based on a realization that I had had um, regarding the way that uh, Razors and the way that Andy Wegner uh, brought that company up from being pretty much a joke and pretty much a laughing stock in rollerblading, brought it up to being the premier company in about four or five years. And in the very beginning, one of the ways that he, well, very beginning, after he brought the company to the US, one of the ways he did this was by sponsoring the best skater in every town in America. And that's a generalization, but that's pretty much what was done. If you went to some random town in the US, there would be a, a retailer that would stock razor skates and whoever the best skater in that town was, he would be getting free razors through that shop. So there's a very, very large number of skaters in the US who at one point or another were getting hooked up by Andy. And, um, you know, we were all around in the, in the early 2000s to see things like, um, see things like ground control happen, to see things like uh, rain liners happen, to see a lot of brands that came out that were just labels put on uh, sunshine products, but that were apparently quote unquote owned by whoever the skater was that Andy had chosen who had already shook hands with him and already agreed to, you know, to deal with him and to be, to be someone who would, who would play along for the, for the money and for the, uh, for the opportunity. So the realization I had quite a long time ago was not to trust and not to deal with anyone who had dealt with Andy because you couldn't believe what they were saying about their stake in the company, about what power they had to run the company in, in the way that it would be run. They were just, they were just a face. They were just a name put on the company to convince us that they owned it and that we were supporting a skater owned company. Well, the three guys who have uh, presented themselves as the owners of Create Originals were all sponsored by Razors at one point. They were? And there's certain things like the, uh, like the hardware that came on the frames in the very beginning that are... It raises question marks. Why would Andy supply hardware to a rival frame company? Doesn't make any sense. Unless he owns the company. And it's just a pretend rival frame company. No. Really? I'm just thinking out loud, mate. <laughs> what if what if the plan was never to bring the frames out? <laughs> we never out, outside of a couple of clips of Broskow and like um what's his name? We never saw anyone skating these things. We uh, never saw a pair in real life. Mark Wo Woodja. 
that that guy, yeah, isn't yeah. it? We we never saw anyone skating these things seriously. Who who's actually seen a pair in real life? They were at a uh, bitter cold, weren't they? They were. Uh, at... I, I wasn't there. Were they? Yeah, they. Um, I think they were. Yeah, the last bitter cold. I think they were there, just like a prototype That's... or something. You know, because I went through seeing. I went through seeing like Kaiser Diamond frames get made. I went through seeing Kaiser Armatec frames get made. The guy they credited with designing the Armatec frame lived about 15 miles down the road from Woodward East, where I, where I was living at the time. So, just certain things that raise certain question marks. Right? What if what we're really looking at here is destructive competition which i mean we we know how much power slide and sunshine love doing that love playing that game what if what we're seeing here it was not a plan to bring these frames out and for us to support a skater owned company what if what we're looking at was a plan to destroy people's hope and destroy people's trust in anyone being able to do any such thing can you fucking imagine it worked really well then yeah. Well, this is this is why I pose the question because if you if you look at not only what has happened thus far, but at what is happening now, it's the logical conclusion, right? If I if I were the owner of Create Originals and I was a skater and it was a skater-owned company, and I was having problems delivering on my promise to give hardware to all these skaters who had invested in me. I wouldn't cut them off. I wouldn't just totally ignore them and say nothing to them and give them nothing and totally destroy any hope they had in receiving even a sorry it didn't work out, but thank you for believing in us. Yeah, it is really fucked up. Um, so what was the last update? Who knows? Who knows? And um, uh, shop tasks. This is the point I'm making. If you look at what has happened... The logical conclusion is that this was done not to deliver on the frames and to build a truly skater-owned company, but to destroy the opportunity for anyone to actually do that. It's pretty much the same thing that Senate did. I have no problem believing that uh, that anyone affiliated with Power Slide or with Sunshine would do the same thing. Are we talking like dirty politics now? Just... Just destructive competition is all. Um, but but if, if you wanted to use the word dirty, the, the, the question you would ask would be pointed at the quote-unquote company owners. You know, I mean, you can't have a real conversation with these guys about, about their businesses, you know. That's so bizarre. Any, anyone, anyone who was on Razors at some point who is now a quote-unquote company owner Try and have a conversation with them about their business. See what happens. Did, uh, <laughs> this is such a big can of worms, too. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of... Uh, people people are vocal and make jokes and, and things about it. But it is, it is a pretty serious thing that that much money and support went into something that could possibly not come out. So what, can, 
they can prove me wrong at any time by reintroducing themselves to the people who believed in them and put faith in them and sent them money. Uh, yeah, Leon uh, like was... I said, like I said, I don't care if I get the frames, but to treat all of these people who are apparently your customers and you, your people, the ones, the ones that are going to put you on the map and the ones that are going to give your company a future, to treat those people like dirt, it makes no sense if what you've been telling us thus far is the truth. It makes no sense. Yeah, that's a good point. It's uh, it's not setting up a good... It's weird that rollerblading is more disappointment and jokes about products than success stories. Well, it, maybe if we were the ones running it, things would be different. I mean, I, I've been saying the same thing for God knows how long. I mean... That the, the people that are in position to take the lion's share of the profit from anything that gets sold in rollerblading, they're not using that profit to make it stronger and to make it better and to give it a future. And this is the point that I'm making here. If even the people who claim they're the ones doing that aren't doing that, then of course it's going to be disappointment. Of course it's not going to work out. Um, I know that uh, Leon's very close step by step um, to completing the circle of all the items we need to make a skate. Nice. <laughs> Which is awesome. Uh, there just needs to be some some wheels made, but the frames, the frames in the liner are made. Those relationships are done. Um, now, the actual skate or boot, that's still a missing part of the equation and things like uh, finding someone who can make sole plate shapes and things like that, you know, it's still going. But um, he's the first person that, that made me think it's very possible if you just think of something, try, you know, go see if you can get it made or, or if, you, if you know someone who knows someone who could maybe make something. He got some shit made. And yeah. and it skates really well too. It's the it's it came out of his brain or yeah. it, you know and I, I do I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it skates really fucking well. So it's like I trust what is going to come out of his brain. And you would think that there'd be more people doing it, but um, let, let let let's compare let's compare what Leon's doing to what Kaiser's doing. The way Leon's doing it, this is the way it's supposed to work. Okay, you use your brain, you make something that works in ways better than what you already have, and you go out and you test it. And your testing teaches you more things and more ways about how to make it better. So then the next one allows you to do even more. Now, I know this isn't how Kaiser operates because we've seen their frames, we've seen the way they do it. They they half-ass it every time, and every two years, they've somehow got a bunch of money to go and half-ass it again, and it never works any better than the last one. It never does anything for you that the last one didn't do. But since Leon really cares and he really is a skater, 
then he can make things that are going to work better for skaters. And with that passion and with that, that brain, with that mentality of I'm the one skating these things, I know how it feels, I've got an idea for how to make it work better, so we'll try that on the next one. And the hardware just evolves. And we haven't seen that. We haven't seen our hardware evolve yet. And I think the fact, the fact that most people are the fact that most people are skating around on like majestic twelve shells, uh, and if they're really lucky, they've got a frame on it that holds flat seventy twos. I mean, you know, we've already said this a bunch of times. How is this not what we were skating twenty years ago? Where's the where's the evolution? And that's why I'm so excited about what you guys are doing because I'm seeing the hardware evolve and we're watching pretty much live you go out and test the hardware and show what it can do. Oh, and it's, and it's just the beginning. <laughs> like you guys have only just started. So and that's how it's supposed to work. Like we're, we're so lost as far as skater owned is concerned that the younger skaters today don't even understand the purpose of it. They don't even understand why people like, like Leon should be getting the money and people like Power Slide and Sunshine shouldn't be getting the money. Like how, how long have we been hearing about this, uh, about this GC power blading frame? Where is it? Uh, Thanksgiving, I think. American I Thanksgiving. I think it's coming out American Thanksgiving. Um, if, it, if it's going to work, I want it. But, I mean, that thing's been in the rumor mill for like three or four years now. It's like cool. It didn't, take, it didn't take Leon three or four years because he, he wants it and he, he's, gonna, he's the one going to skate on it. So it needs to get made now as opposed to someone who's just going to make money off it and they're not sure if they're going to make money off it. So they can just sit on it for like years and years and years. Oh, yeah. Bake did, Bake did it on Kickstarter, but I don't know if you can even get those anymore. I don't know if that was just a small run. GC they, almost looks like they bought. They might fake. do more. I think I went looking recently, and there were white ones available. But GC looks like they that they just took the bake design, kind of. I don't know. Um, I mean, the, the lines look good. We weren't looking at a drawn picture. We were looking at actual frames. Yeah, it usually doesn't take. It usually doesn't take sunshine very long to go from like real photos of a sample to product on the shelf. They usually get that done pretty quickly. So this is true. Oh, I was going to say something about Oh, um I also think it's there's an age thing happening right now where uh Leon is I guess second generation kind of my age. Um, that it's a natural progression to start tinkering with your hardware for some people around this age and to want new things in your hardware and to start experiencing, um, you know, like try a, a speed skate or try a 90 millimeter skate with a longer frame. It just, it naturally happens. Um, but I think some of the people at the top of their game, they're just not at the age. It would be so cool. Like if Chris Farmer just got to build some shit and try a bunch of different frames, you know, like what would he want to skate? If he got to try every wheel size and different frame lengths. And 
I would love to see that. We just maybe they're not old enough yet to start to care, or maybe the paycheck's good enough to not have to care about it. I don't know. It might be different these days, but in my day, what I noticed amongst a lot of the really, really talented professionals is that they really couldn't care less about the equipment. Um, as far as being a pro skater was concerned, it was about getting getting paid right and getting taken care of right. And regardless of what skate they had to ride, they would make it work. And is that good or like bad? They, they were they were pro. They would just make it work. Is that is that good or is that bad? Um. Well, I mean, it, it worked for them. I don't know that it worked as far as evolving the hardware for all skaters, but that didn't matter to them. Yeah. Because they didn't think about hardware in the same way that you and I do. Like, I honestly think that if I change the wheel size on my skate or if I change the wheelbase on my skate, that it's going to make me a better skater. It's going to give me potential to do more things. And... I'm not saying that one way is true and that one way is false. I'm just saying that they were talented enough or they had the right mentality to not think about it that way. Oh, that'd be hard. They just, they just thought that regardless of what the hardware was or wasn't, they would just make the tricks work. That I mean, would Like Dustin testing the first shadow frame is a perfect example of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. How many, he, people, snap, how many people snap those things in half and yet... Dustin must have gone back to, you know, to Shane and Mike Wilson and the Solomon guys and been like, yeah, it's perfect. I love it. Don't change a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. I love it. And that's because he's Dustin and he just makes it work. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, I, I bought it. It was pretty rare that I would come across a, a pro who would switch sponsors and have something to say about the skates being better or worse or they didn't like them or whatever. That was, that was pretty rare. That's a good point. I we need tinker Unless they were like like feeler skates or like out poppies or something like that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Unless they were skates that no one really bought, but that people were some people were paid to use. So where the hell does uh, aggressive skating go from here then? You're asking the wrong guy that question. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're getting close to two hours, so I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll we'll wrap try it and here. wrap it up with that one point that I did want to make. Um, you were talking earlier about uh, Jason Leventhal and Shane McConkie, and uh, another guy who played a big part in this was J.P. Eau Claire, and he was one of the uh, new Canadian Air Force, I think they were called. So he was one of the guys who, you know, first went to Solomon and said, we think this would be a great idea for a ski. This is how it's going to look. This is what we want it to do. Can you make it? And we'll go out and do crazy stuff on it and you can sell a whole bunch of them. And he's been instrumental in the rise of Solomon and free skiing. He's been instrumental in the rise of uh, Armada. Um, he's done more things on skis than most people would ever dream of. Uh, you you probably remember him as that guy from the, the the edit where he was just bombing down the hill, the street, somewhere in Canada. Yeah, in trail. He just shoveled a whole bunch of snow, and this guy basically puts out a a street edit. It's really hard to even call it an urban edit because he's literally like 
he's literally skiing through 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 the streets of a downtown area uh, of a residential area as if it were a mountain as if it were a terrain park um it's amazing it's but long story short um he 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 died in an avalanche uh recently a few weeks ago or a month ago and uh he and another expert skier were uh hiking up um some mountains in south america to ski them and before they got anywhere near the top avalanche took them out so it um it's something that's relatively common in skiing compared to rollerblading given the risks that they're facing given the fact that they're far more at the mercy of the elements and the mercy of mother nature than um than rollerbladers are but um looking at his achievements and looking at the way that he lived his life the way that he the way that he made his career happen i'm i'm seeing a certain virtue or a certain value in that and in the way that Shane McConkey did um that i haven't seen in rollerblading for a really long time and it 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 put a put a question in my head these these guys are fully committed to what they're doing not only on the skis but in the industry in the community and everything else in their life has to orbit has to revolve around how committed they are and how invested they are in skiing and i understand that there's more opportunity for that to be seen and to be appreciated by the general public than we have in rollerblading at the moment but it still begs the question of are there rollerbladers that are as fully committed as someone like JP O'Claire or someone like Shane McConkey is to skiing are there people who have committed their life to what they're doing on skates with the understanding that they've not only laid out the course of their life laid out a plan for their entire life but that they're so invested and they're so committed that it's that passion that that commitment that investment that is going to bring about their death at the same time because you, you see someone like JP or someone like Shane McConkey uh pass away and you see the legacy that they leave behind and on one hand you want to see it as a tragedy but on the other hand you want to see it as someone who is just totally given themselves and everything that they have to give to their skiing in all aspects to the point that they will reach a point where there's nothing left to give and 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 they die in they die in the course of living their life that way that's that's almost something that needs to be reflected on instead of me just replying back to it <laughs> yeah I, I, it wasn't it, it's it's not it's not a question with a yes or no answer um it's certainly a question that i've been asking myself a great deal since 
since thinking about this and looking at my own life and looking at my own actions and thinking, are there things I'm holding back? Are there things I'm not willing to do? Is there more I could be doing with my time, with my energy? And, and of course there is. I mean, no one's, no one's perfect, but it just seems a lot less visible or a lot less apparent in what we're doing now than it is for, uh, for those guys. And there's guys in other fields as well. You know? There's guys who you can see are pushing it so far that they're going to, sooner or later, they're going to step over that line. But before that happens, you're seeing the, the, the actions and the, the, the product of someone who is fully invested and fully committed to being that passionate about what they do and believing it will succeed, believing it will be worthwhile and just, just a, an unstoppable drive in them to see that happen. I think that's what we all I think that's what we all see and what we all love in Chris Haffey. Yeah. Especially that, especially that edit we were talking about before where he goes out, he does a few ski tricks and then he goes to the mega ramp and does things that we've never seen anyone else do on the mega ramp. And it, it shows you that here's someone who is willing to take it to the limit and push those limits and you have every reason to to believe that he is that guy and that he is in that same position to drop in on that thing and hit the big one the big launch 70 feet or however long it is and then go into the quarter and air radically high out of it it had to be going through his mind that if I'm, I'm going to drop in and do this and I might die trying to do this, but it's more important that, that I try anyway. Like it's more important that I make it happen. I don't know that he's playing the same role in, uh, you know, in the industry or in the community that those guys did, but, I'm just trying to make the point that is, is there more that we all could be doing? Is there more hope and more spirit that we could have in how we do things? You know, there's a whole bunch of us that haven't quit, but how many of us are committed all the way? Oh, man. I need to hear those words out loud sometimes. <laughs> because it's it's um it's almost scary to think of it. Doing it. Oh shit. Yeah, well, I mean I I don't really think of myself as a person who has a life beyond rollerblading. <laughs> Man, I, I <laughs> there was and there was a and there was a time in my life where that thought would have been very very scary. I struggle between the two, uh, the two sides. Um, 
I know deep down I obsessively want to make videos and skate and keep experimenting with stuff until I can't or until it's not fun anymore, but it keeps getting better and that's extra scary. Um, and I have a life set up in a way that I can't do it all the time. Uh Um, and then, and then I try and think of if, if I was to snap my fingers and have all the time to do it in the world, what, what that would look like. And I know that that's the life that I secretly want would be to, to do exactly what I'm doing in my spare time, but full time. Um, it's weird to think about that though, to know that that's, that's what I want. And I don't know if I can pursue it any more intensely now or just be patient and chip away at it. That's the hardest part I think for lots of people is to, you have to be uh, strategic about your your passion and, and love for skating. It has to be in short bursts sometimes um, because if you're impulsive and you, um, the way the world works and the way the world is structured for me personally, I, ha- I have to have my life set up in a way that is very normal and try and work on it through that. And it drives me crazy sometimes, but it's it's the only, it's the structure that works the best in this, yeah, yeah. the way the world is now, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm less idealistic than I used to be, but I still see something coming to fruition I, I i still i still see a certain achievement or a certain goal that i am working towards and that it, it went in one way or another it, it will be reached and i have my whole life to do that um but but in one way or another the things that I do on skates and related to skating are, are working towards that one goal. And I understand that as people become adults, there's there's more claims on your your time and your energy and your attention. And you know, people are more than welcome to change their minds and go elsewhere. If you want to leave skating and go and do something else, or if you want to knock your skating back to you know. Uh, doing it far less and do other things far more you're free to do that but it's still a question to ponder of the people that consider themselves committed and the people that consider themselves you know in it for the for the long haul is there is there more that we could be doing because the way that I have seen people affected and the way that I have seen people respond to the legacies that people like Shane McConkie and people like J.P. O'Claire have left behind, it just struck me as something that doesn't really exist in rollerblading in this day and age. And it made me sad. I don't think we can go any anywhere else after that. That is that is the conclusion. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> so, I'm going to ponder that, maybe have a drink. 
Um, because <laughs> I, I have to go back. To, yeah, I don't know. That's a great thing to ponder. That's all I can say. I'm, I'm the man who broke Joey's spirit. <laughs> oh fuck no! We're gonna be making wizard frame tests until it snows, and then I'm gonna be skiing. I'm in a good place. So, um, with that, thank you, Jacob, for coming on the podcast and. Um, I'm excited to to talk about skiing when we do our next podcast. My experience of skiing and how it went. Yeah, hopefully I'll be a lot further down that road as well. And um, you and me are going to be doing a whole lot of talking about it between now and then. Uh, and uh, I'm excited for spring, man. April, don't forget. Yeah. Visit like, Visiting to Kamloops, uh, longboarding path, whatever the – they're basically longboarding paths below the longboarding path and uh yeah you'll get to experience the greatest skate park in the world too because i hope everyone understands that's the really fun part for me the fun part for me is not necessarily the skiing the fun part is working out how to bring all of that onto wheels and that doesn't happen when there's you know 12 inches of snow on the ground oh shit so spring you might have 15. You might have something that I can put under my feet. No, there's no might. If I'm if I'm driving up to Canada, there's there's no might. Oh shit. I'm excited. Okay. Hey, cool. Well, that's that. Have a good you night. Said the ski resort's going to be closed, right? Yeah. You might but be able the, to do some the hiking. Longboarding, the longboarding park's going to be open. Oh yeah, all that shit's gonna be up in Kansas Hill. Yeah, there'll be plenty of places to to test things. Boom. Yeah, there it is. Cut it. <laughs> okay. Have Bye, a good man. night, Jacob. Bye.